Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. Glad to see you all this morning. Before we get started today, a few quick announcements. First, I want to make sure that you all know that we began an Easter, an Easter season preaching and teaching series last Sunday, on Easter Sunday, and we'll continue for all of the Sundays of the Easter season. There will be sermons preached in both church and parish hall in all of the spaces on Sunday mornings and teachings happening in the forum in this space on whatever the lessons were that we were using for our sermons. And we are doing this at the request of our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, who has asked that churches look at the book of Acts in the Easter season. And so what we're doing is we're taking the chunks of Acts all the way through in the seven weeks of Easter and talking about the way that the church, the early church, responded to Jesus's resurrection and how they built the church so that it can inspire us again today. And so we're doing those in sermons and we're doing those in teachings on the same Sundays. And so I hope you will join us for those throughout this Easter season. And just in case you missed this, we are hosting the Choir of Men and Boys from Modlin College, Oxford, this Sunday. They will sing, the men's choir will sing at 9 a.m., the men and boys will sing at 11 a.m. Sunday morning, and then they will give a concert Sunday night. All of the music, the music they're singing Sunday morning and the music they're singing Sunday night is completely different. So if this is something you really like, you can come twice, you won't hear anything repeated. Um, and if it's something that you don't necessarily like, then you're wrong. And I think... <laughs> I think you should join us Sunday morning anyway. Um, so it will be really, really great. All right, let's open with a prayer and we will get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we ask your presence upon us as we begin this Easter season. Fill us with your spirit and inspire us by the work of your son that we may do the work that you have for us in the world to bring about your kingdom on earth. Today we especially hold in our prayers those requested for prayer, including Effie, Robbie, Bob, Taylor, David, Melanie, and Jack, and all those that we hold in our hearts. May your healing touch be upon them. All this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. amen. So this morning we are looking at chapter 20 in the book of Luke. Chapter 20 gets into lots of good stuff. It's a Q&A kind of chapter. And so there are actually five different sections that we're going to look at this week, different than most weeks. The first is a question of Jesus's authority. There are people who are trying to figure out by whose authority does Jesus do all the stuff that he's doing? Particularly because, how did chapter 19 end? He just turned over all the tables, right? He kind of went into the temple, threw stuff up in the air, and they've come to him at first and say, how in the world do you think you have the right to do this sort of stuff? Then we get into a few teaching moments. First, we've got the parable of the wicked tenants. And of course, that doesn't sound good, so we know those tenants are bad. Then we've got the question of paying taxes. Then we have the question, oops, question of the resurrection. 
And finally, we close with David's son, which is a question about the Messiah and the widow's might. For those of you who are paying very close attention, the widow's might is actually the very beginning of chapter 21, but we're going to kind of take those first couple of verses and link them together with the question of David's son so that we can get a whole picture of what Jesus is doing. So today's chapter is, falls within the middle of what we consider Palm Sunday and, and uh, Maundy Thursday. So if you kind of place this in time with Jesus, the palm procession has happened, the temple has been overturned, he's overturned the, the marketplace, and then he's got a little window of time before the Last Supper and his arrest on Thursday night. This is that little window of time. And so if we can kind of put ourselves in context, Jesus has drawn a lot of attention to himself, right? Not only is this the palm procession, but he's also destroyed the marketplace and the temple. This is not the way to remain subtle. And so the people are now trying to figure out in earnest how to get rid of this guy. And he is here in these couple days trying to teach his followers at the very end what he really wants them to know because he knows he's going to be arrested and the rest of all of that stuff is going to happen very soon. So that's really where we are in chapter 20 is this little window of time where he gets to sort of leave his followers with some kind of nugget that will help them figure out what's going on after he dies and how to interpret his resurrection. So if we take chapter 20 really start to finish, and see if you can track this as we discuss the different sections. This is a summary of God's entire salvation history. If we take each little section of this chapter, we will see, in essence, the entire cosmic story of what God has been doing and will do in the world. So although we do get some parables and some teachings what Jesus is really doing is giving his followers a glimpse, start to finish, of the work that God's doing in the world through him. And so we're going to try and pick up those themes. So it's one of those, like, make sure you don't lose the forest for the trees, right? What Jesus is really doing in this whole chapter is something pretty special. And so we're going to try and pick that up within all the different specificities of the sections. Now, Jesus' authority. As I mentioned before, Jesus has just at the end of chapter 19 gone in and just wrecked the marketplace of the temple. And as we talked about two weeks ago, the marketplace was not necessarily bad because it was money. Oftentimes, it's treated as bad because there is money being exchanged in the temple. Not necessarily. What it was doing was undermining the purpose of why people went to the temple. So if it wasn't money, it could have been something else. It could have been bartering that undermined it. It could have been any number of ways in which the purpose of sacrifice in the temple was being undermined. We discussed that the marketplace was, in essence, a convenience store. And the pilgrims coming to the temple, especially on Passover, right? Remember that although we have our own context for this story— the Jews are about to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. That's why Jesus is there. Passover is major. You know, we talk about C&E Christians. 
Um, I actually talk about CME Christians because it's Christmas, Mother's Day, and Easter. Um, but we've got, you know, we've got CME Christians. The Jews sort of have the same kind of thing because you've got, you know, Jews will show up a couple or three times a year for the High Holy Days, and Passover is one of them. So even if you're not going to synagogue throughout the year, you're probably going to Passover. And so Passover is this major moment for the people who run the convenience stores because they are going to make a killing. The problem with that is that they're making the sacrifice convenient. Sacrifice is not supposed to be convenient. That's the point. And Jesus gets there at the very beginning of chapter 21 with the widow's might. Same idea. So he goes in, upturns the apple cart, so to speak, and the leaders want to know why he thinks he can do that kind of thing. So when they ask him, you see that we've got chief priests, scribes, and elders that come to Jesus. This is, in essence, Luke's way of saying it's all the leadership are coming to Jesus to say, who are you? And Jesus, because Jesus never just answers the question, responds to them by saying, who was John the Baptist? And this unnerves them because remember the Jew, the Jewish leadership, although not 100%, but mostly they were legal scholars. These are lawyers who specialize in what we might call canon law. They know their law. And when Jesus says, tell me, who was John the Baptist? Like good lawyers, they run that path all the way down, right? They understand if they answer this, then Jesus is going to say that. And if they answer this other thing, Jesus will say that other thing. And they realize that he sort of trapped them. No matter what they respond, Jesus is going to have some good comeback that undermines their authority. And so instead, they say, well, I don't know. So these fabulous legal scholars act like they have no idea how to respond to that question. And so Jesus, kind of tit for tat, says, well, fine. You're not going to tell me who John the Baptist is. Well, I'm not going to explain to you why I have the authority to do what I just did. Instead, Jesus says, when all, Jesus recalls the authority of John the Baptist as a prophet, and if John the Baptist was a prophet, then to follow the idea out, Jesus then can be the Messiah because of the moment when Jesus was baptized. So this harkens all the way back to chapter 3. Remember, the first two chapters of Luke is, is... birth narrative. So we get John's birth and Jesus's birth and Jesus's presentation and Jesus teaching in the temple, all that stuff in the first two chapters. Chapter three is when his ministry begins, and it begins when he shows up at the Jordan River to be baptized. And when he is baptized, as Jesus is praying, Luke writes, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, saying, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Luke, in this moment, is showing that if John the Baptist is a true prophet, then Jesus 
is the true Messiah. For Luke, this is a massively important detail. Because as I said, chapter 20 is in essence the summary of the salvation history of God. In order to set the stage, God has to show that Jesus is the Messiah and does so in the moment of his baptism. That is the story that Luke is about to tell in this chapter. So if Jesus is the Messiah, then his authority to do whatever he wants in the temple is plainly exercised. If Jesus is the Messiah, then the next real big question is, what is the Messiah? And we're going to get there when it comes down to these questions. But Luke is saying Jesus is the true Messiah, and Messiahship is not exactly what you think it is. It extends well beyond what you may have thought Messiah meant. And Jesus, as Messiah, becomes Lord over everything, and so certainly Lord over the temple. Any questions about that? Mostly because the parable of the wicked tenants is the best part of this whole chapter. Oh, yes. Okay. So the question is, is the baptism in Matthew and Mark? Jesus is baptized in all four Gospels. There are only a few, there are only a few stories that happen in all four Gospels. Um, one is the palm procession happens in all four Gospels. doesn't happen necessarily in the same place, but it does happen in all four. Baptism is something that happens in all four. And then, of course, the passion story is something that happens in all four, which is one of the reasons why, if you think about church history, the Roman Catholic Church and Orthodox churches have seven sacraments. When the Protestants did their Reformation, they, in essence, threw out five of them, and they had two. The reason that two were kept is because they're the two that Jesus did, baptism and Eucharist. It's not that the other things aren't important, but they're the two of the only things that happen in all four Gospels. And so the reformers, so to speak, said, it's not that the other five aren't important. They're, they're great moments. We should do them. That's not the problem. But if we want to hold up the most critical moments when we know God is present, the only real two that we can lean on based on the Bible is baptism and Eucharist. And that's why that, those became, in essence, the principal sacraments of the church. Now, we still do the other stuff, and we call them sacramental. They are. They just are sort of the, you've got almost the principal and the lesser sacraments. Kind of. Don't push that. Okay. Yes. Don't push it. Sandra. Yes. Okay. The question is, why do other churches, why do most Protestant churches not stress Eucharist? The quick, the quick answer, that, that, that's a big, it depends on which church. Um, you've got some like the Lutherans that, that they are very communion-centric. Um, then you go all the way. There are certainly non-denominational groups and others that basically never celebrate communion ever. Um, or if they do, it's almost like a prayer. Um, some of that has to do with, I think some people think 
that communion is unhealthy, there is a, there's a general, um, we who do this every week probably don't think much of what it is that we do, but we share, we all drink from a cup together. If we really want to push it, that kind of sounds nasty. Um, except there's a reason that we use silver. It was figured out a long time ago. People didn't know why. Silver does not transfer germs. Silver doesn't hold germs, which is one of the reasons why people ate from silver, silver utensils, silver plates, and not things like gold or other kinds of metals because silver doesn't hold that. There's also a reason why, so there's a reason why we don't do grape juice and it's not because we don't like people in recovery. It's because wine actually does kill those germs, right? The fortification of the wine, actually, the alcohol does kill the germs. And there's a reason that you won't see me. Some churches love this stuff. But there's a reason I don't really like pottery and glass and those other things with communion vessels because they do transfer all of those germs. It's not, I mean... I don't want to sound like a germaphobe. I am, but I don't want to sound like it. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think there's just a general level of, oh, I hate to say responsibility because I don't want to sound like others aren't responsible, but that's just me. Um, and there's a reason. It's, it, that has also been proven. Um, scientists have sort of done the studies of that stuff too, but the church figured that out probably by accident. Like, oh, these people over here, well, they didn't die from disease when they share communion, what are they doing? Oh, they're using silver. Well, all the people over there are using gold, they're dead, right? I mean, I don't know if that was sort of what happened. Um, when you go to Protestant churches to do communion, you get, you get, have you seen the little cups where you get, you get the little bit of grape juice and you get like the, you peel the thing back and you get the little wafer of communion and then you throw all the plastic away and it's, it's, uh, I kind of want to just say, like, don't worry about it, because it's not communal, and communion is meant to be communal, so if you don't want to do that, don't do it. It's not that you can't worship unless you have communion. We have excellent examples in our tradition of worship without Eucharist. Many of you likely remember, if you were born in the Episcopal Church, prior to the 1979 prayer book, it was very common that Episcopal churches did not celebrate Eucharist every Sunday, right? Once a month, maybe, maybe even less frequently, right? We had morning prayer and evening prayer and services that are beautiful services that began to lose popularity when we became more Eucharistic. I like the Eucharist. I think it's a good way to, to celebrate our community, but not necessarily without the other services. We've got this beautiful traditions of daily prayer that are not Eucharistic. And here at St. Michael, we've done, we've sort of gotten, we've mashed them together. The Sunday evening worship here in the chapel is, is made up. Um, those of you who like it, it's, I kind of like it now. When I first came here, I thought, what are we doing? Because it's evening prayer, and then we just tack on Eucharist. It's like, we don't want to stop doing evening prayer, but I guess Eucharist is important, so we're going to do that too. Like, that service does not exist. That's not what anyone else does. 
But I've kind of grown to like it. But it's not a thing. Like, you're supposed to kind of do one or the other. And we, we like our cake and eat it too. So we do both. <laughs> I think that Eucharist, when it maintains its communal identity, that's when traditions do it more. The traditions that don't maintain the communal nature of the Eucharist tend to let it go, and they just do it kind of almost like they're supposed to. It's sort of like the one day you're going to eat a salad. You know, it's, I guess we have to. Um, it, that's, I think, the way that communion works mostly with other traditions. But we're also a sacramental church. Other traditions don't have a, as strong a sacramental identity that we do. So the sacraments, so to speak, are considered differently in those traditions. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Any other questions before we move on? Yeah, Karen's referencing another, um, the anointing at Bethany is another that's in all four Gospels. I may do, before we're done here, a little list, sort of the stories that are in all four, because that raises them up. When we, when we become critical scholars of the Bible, that's what we are becoming. It's important to know what is only in one and what is in all four. Because when push comes to shove, you may love that one story. But if it's only in Luke, and it's not in Mark, Matthew, and John, it's probably reasonable that it not hold as much weight as the ones that are in all four. It's not unimportant. It's just if you find yourself in a position where you're having a spirited conversation with a friend, and they are dying in the ditch of that story that's in Luke and none other, you can politely and arrogantly bring up that that story is really only in one gospel. This other story is in all four and is likely more authoritative. Boom. Right? <laughs> With the love of Jesus. Yes. So the gospel parallel book, if you've ever seen one, does compare all of them? It, well, it depends. There are different versions of gospel parallels. Most of the ones you're going to find compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke because the synoptics are the same most of the time. If you pick up a gospel parallel that compares all four, the problem is most of John is unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you, you have huge sections where John says all of this and the other columns are just blank. It, it makes it kind of wonky and difficult to use. So I could theoretically give you those specific passages that are in all four. The stories may be in all four, but the stories are not the same in all four. So there's a palm procession, yes, in John, but it's different than the one in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The Jesus visits the temple to overturn the marketplace in all four, but he does it after his baptism in John, whereas in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he does it after the palm procession right before his death. Eh. I mean, it's there, but it's in different context and narratively is meant to emphasize a different thing. So it's doing that kind of comparison is important, but also to be careful. 
All right, let's move on to the parable of the wicked tenants. <laughs> parable of the wicked tenants is not hard to figure out. If you have read this parable, the quick of the parable is a person plants a vineyard, leaves people in charge of tending to the vineyard, and goes away. Then the owner starts sending people back to the vineyard to tell the tenants of the vineyard had to do stuff. And the people don't want to listen to the messengers that the owner is sending. And the owner gets frustrated that they're not listening to these messengers and so says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son because certainly the tenants will listen to my son. And when the tenants see that it's the owner's son, they all get crafty and they say, let's kill the heir and then the owner will have no claim on this land after his death and it becomes ours. Ha ha. Then the owner, what would the owner do? Jesus says, destroy the tenants. The people listening to this story do not have to be terribly lucid to figure out that the owner of the vineyard is God, messengers sent back to the vineyard over time are the prophets, finally, after the tenants of the vineyard, the Israelites, do not listen to the prophets, God sends his son. And what will they do? They'll kill him. The people hearing this story can put that little puzzle together very fast. And they sort of are repulsed by this idea. They would not kill God's son. But Jesus says, oh, but you will. Jesus quotes, so there's the simple part of the parable. But Jesus continues beyond that idea and quotes from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. Now, there are two ways to interpret Jesus's quote of this passage. The first is physical building of the stone. And in masonry, you've got cornerstones that tend to be, they're critical to the whole. We, we, we have to remember that the way that masons worked is they cut stones to very precisely fit together. There was no concrete or other things that held stones together like bricks are laid. Instead, they had to cut stones perfectly so that their symmetry kept them solid. Think of like the pyramids and other things like that. In order to do that kind of specific cutting, any stone that had a weakness in it or a crack of some kind would be rejected because it could, in essence, uh, undermine the integrity of the entire structure. So when masons would go out into rock quarries, they would, they would hewn the stone from the mountain and the pieces that were whole and solid would be sent over to the masons to be cut properly. Those that were imperfect were thrown away. In Jerusalem itself, right outside the old walls at the time of Jesus's life, not currently, at the time of Jesus's life, there was a big rock quarry. That is where Herod and others got the rock that they were using to build and expand the temple. The people listening to Jesus would have understood why a builder would reject an imperfect stone. But it could be that an imperfect stone is sourced for small specific places that are not the big stones, like on the corner 
or like at the top of an arch where you need an oddly shaped stone. And that could be what Luke is pointing to. However, there is another idea. If you go to Jerusalem today, that rock quarry is now a part of the old city within the city walls. And that rock quarry is where Jesus would have been crucified. On top of the place where the early Christians think Jesus was crucified is a big stone with a massive crack all the way through it. It is very possible that as the quarry was being dug, so to speak, they would have found this big crack in a stone, and they're not going to just move the stone. That's too much effort. They just hewn the rock all around this big crack stone, and that that stone actually became the place on which the crosses for crucifixion were placed because it was higher than the regular ground so that the people could see the men die, right? Remember that crucifixion was meant to be, it was, a, it was terrorism is really what it was. It was meant for everyone to be wickedly afraid of the, whoever crucified the person, the Romans. And so they want to make sure that the passers-by could see the crucifixions. And so they would plant those crosses on higher ground so everyone could see just how horrible it was to defy the Romans. Today, that cracked stone is surrounded by a chapel, and you can go and see it through a glass wall. And it's very possible that Luke knows of that stone and is creating a metaphor around the stone that the builders rejected was the stone on which Christ was crucified and saved us all. So interpreting two different ways, whatever makes sense to you. But he quotes from Psalm 118. And for us today, the question I want us to consider here is how do we go to powerful people and speak God's word to them. The problem is that for most of us, we are powerful people. And we can, if we're not careful, fall into the trap of the Sadducees and others who invest in maintaining their power, invest in maintaining their security, invest in maintaining their lineage and their inheritance and their estates and whatever it is that they've collected, they're very, very highly invested in maintaining all of that. So when something inconvenient comes along, like Jesus, it's easy to throw out whatever it is that he's saying if it threatens your power. And I don't think that it's an accident you know, I'll take the Holy Spirit's lead any day, that we are looking at this parable on the 50th anniversary of King's assassination. This parable is not going to be one of your favorites. It's not comforting. It's not, it's not a warm fuzzy. But it might be the most important parable that Luke offers us because it is the most challenging 
to us. Jesus doesn't make sense if you have a lot to lose. Jesus makes great sense if you've got nothing to lose, right? He sounds great. But if you've got stuff to lose, power, authority, security, then it's difficult to really get on Jesus's train because he undermines all of that. He wants us to not value all of that. And that's really hard. And when we feel that challenge to us, it's incumbent upon us to at least consider the vulnerable position of detaching ourselves from our stuff and our security and our power for the truth of God. Or else, we contribute to maintaining the status quo. And maintaining the status quo means we tend God's vineyard without listening to anything God says. And Jesus says in this parable, it does not work out very well for us in the end. Questions about that? <sighs> Take a breath. Some of you aren't breathing. So, <clears throat> moving on to the question about taxes. This is also not a very difficult teaching to understand. What I love about this passage is up to now, they've questioned Jesus' authority. They've questioned, Jesus has taught them that they are the ones who are refusing to listen to God, and God will come back and destroy them. And so they get smart, and they come at Jesus again, trying to undermine him. And I love this. They said, Luke writes, they came to Jesus pretending to be honest. I love that. Then they say to Jesus, teacher, we know that you are right in what you say and teach, and you show deference to no one, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Man, flattery gets you everywhere, right? <laughs> These people are like, oh, holy Jesus, right? When they're trying to catch him in a trap so they can accuse him of heresy. They say, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to the emperor or not? And in one of my favorite moments of Jesus, because I, I love the sort of snarky Jesus. I think it's great. Um, he says, well, why don't you show me a coin, right? And he says, hey, who's on this coin? Well, it's the emperor. Well, give him his coin back. That's it. Give to the emperor what's the emperor's. Right? He puts his face on this coin, we'll give it back to him. Give to God what is God's, which necessarily begs the question, well, hold up, what's God's stuff? Jesus pushes on the idea that the way the world defines value is not the way God defines value. That is the big idea. What the world says is good is not necessarily what God says is good. We see that all the time. It makes me nuts to listen to people on the news talk about what is or is not a good thing that necessarily connects to what is or is not godly. 
crazy. There's a little comic in the pre-sacristy, God sitting at a table outside the pearly gates, and a man walking up with multiple guns around his waist, and God's words say, trust me, it's not a God-given right. And I think that is indicative of the way that we can get so skewed from what is godly that we begin to conflate what may be a human good for what is a godly good does not mean that human goods are bad. But to maintain a differentiation between what we as human people think is good and right over and against what God has said is good and right. God doesn't say much is good and right. It's just kind of simple. You got to love each other. You got to sacrifice for each other. You've got to commit to one another. That's kind of it. We then can extrapolate that out. And if you've ever done any kind of extrapolation in math or finance or economics or you name it, the further out you extrapolate, the worse your data gets. So the more steps away from the simplicity of love your neighbor, the more messy and ungodly whatever good you're trying to define gets. That's not a blanket criticism of trying to do good. But in a way, it's the same kind of criticism that Jesus offers the Jews in their legality, right? Law in itself is not a bad thing, but if the law begins to get in the way of the fundamental godly good, then it becomes a problem. If it helps you to do the good that God wants, great. If it gets in your way, or if the law becomes the ultimate good to you, then it's a problem. However that hits us is unique, right? Every one of us has something in our lives that we think is an ultimate good. And my challenge, as we do Bible studies like this, is for you to consider if the good you hold as ultimate good is really a godly good, or is that just a human good? And if it is just a human good, does it keep you from a higher godly good or not? If it doesn't, then rock on, no problem. But if it does, then don't call yourself principled in order to win an argument. Instead, try and go deeper <clears throat> to see if there is something about God's way of functioning in the world that could expand you beyond what it is that, <clears throat> that you are doing and the way that you're living or the way that you're thinking about living so that we become more like the children of God in the way that Jesus is challenging us. Questions about that? All right, question about resurrection. Oh, good, I have a little time. I don't believe that we've talked about the Jewish idea of resurrection in here, have we? No, okay. So one of, one of the most clear distinctions between Pharisees and Sadducees, uh, before that, there are multiple groups of Jews, not just Pharisees and Sadducees. They just happen to be the biggest groups. And so they, they, they factor larger 
in the gospel stories because it's just a simple narrative technique. If you had all the different Jewish groups coming in and out of the story all at once, it's almost like reading War and Peace. It's just too many characters. So they simplify it so that we basically get these two Jewish identities, Pharisee, Sadducee, and they are used as foils to Jesus' teachings throughout the entire gospel narrative. One of the biggest differentiating factors between Pharisees and Sadducees is this idea of resurrection. Pharisees believed in a resurrection. Sadducees did not. The Pharisaic view of resurrection is based on the stories of Adam and Abraham. God promises both something in the future. There is this implication that life does not end, but life goes beyond just what we see. This idea that even after death, there is something more. The Sadducees, however, root their belief in no resurrection in the story of Moses. In Exodus, there is no implication In Exodus, there is no implication of life after death. Instead, we're given a pretty clear command to make this life count. Your job is to do good in the world in this life. Don't think something else is coming. This is your chance. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, in general, conflicted about a lot of things, but this was a big one. And so Jesus challenges the Pharisees with their idea of resurrection by expanding the Pharisaic view of resurrection. A Pharisaic view of resurrection was something relatively small. It existed, but it was still a small idea. Jesus expands and extends that idea much larger so that there is a present age and an age to come, the language that Luke uses for Jesus's words. In the age to come, we live differently than we live now. They challenge him with this idea by asking about marriage. The Sadducees, well, Jewish law said, because women couldn't own property and all that good stuff, if a woman's husband died, she became the responsibility of her husband, her dead husband's brother. And so it was very common that that responsibility translated as remarriage. And so a widow may remarry her dead husband's brother. And that's mostly a security issue, right, to make sure that she was cared for and and that her children were cared for and all of that stuff. Their ridiculous example is what happens if a woman's husband dies and she marries her dead husband's brother? And then that brother dies and she marries her second dead husband's brother and she marries another brother and then she marries another brother and the marriage... Okay, if the resurrection is true, then Jesus, who's her actual husband? Which makes great sense if your view of God's reality is as small as ours, and it is not. God's reality is much bigger than our reality, 
And yet, how often do we actually do the same thing? Right, this question is ridiculous. And any of us reading it would be like, that's, that's so dumb, right? Can't you think of a better argument? Except how often do we make an argument, decide to do something, or even define our entire lives based on an idea of God's world or vision that is as small as ours. As Anglicans, we are very comfortable with saying God's much bigger than we could ever imagine. And so if we ever find ourselves in a place where it seems like we can't reach an agreement because someone is so committed to one idea and someone else is so committed to another idea, as Anglicans, we always land on neither of us are fully right. And probably both of us are kind of right in some way. God's bigger than any one of us or any vision that we have of the world. And so we've got to hang together in our community because we can never presume to fully understand the way that God works. For some Christian denominations, that does make, that makes no sense because they've got to all agree on all of these things. Even for Episcopalians, especially Episcopalians who have converted from other traditions, they don't like that either because the fundamental idea is that we can know what is true. I think that it is dangerous for us to ever think that we absolutely know everything that is true for God. That alone is problematic because we presume then that we have the capacity to understand the greatness of God. We don't. Anyone who tells you they do is either lying or delusional. Hopefully they're delusional because liars are suck. So I think that we can, as Anglicans, try our best to live into this view that we're to be as good as possible and as open as possible because no one of us knows everything. Any question about that before we get into David's son and messiahship? All right, very end of chapter 20. Jesus has created an arc of the story in chapter 20 that shows what God is doing right now for the good of humanity. God has brought his Messiah into the world through his prophets, that Messiah has shaped a narrative that invites everybody into God's kingdom by warning them what could happen if they refuse, and then begins to reshape what it is that God, or how it is that God measures value. In this last section, Luke compares 
the idea of Messiah to what is valuable in the world, what is valuable to God and what is valuable in the world, and shows that God's vision extends, just what we just said, God's vision extends well beyond anything we could imagine. And here is how he does so with the idea of David. In Jewish tradition, the Messiah is going to come from the line of David, son of David. And yet, Jesus has redefined what Messiah means so that Messiah is Lord of everything, right? His authority goes well beyond the authority the Jews thought the Messiah had. And so he proposes this irrational question. How could the son of David also be David's Lord? Doesn't even answer the question, except that he says this is the new way of understanding Messiah. What you think you have been waiting for is not what God had in mind. What God had in mind is a complete upturning of the world. It's what you have been ignoring. The prophets have been saying this, and yet you, tending the vineyard, have ignored it. And so I have come to really shake you so that you have a 180-degree flip of what you think God is doing in the world through the Messiah. And then to reinforce this point, he points out the widow in a very inconvenient story. There is, this widow's mite bites me all the time because it's not an actual mite, it's mite is a coin. But this story to me is very inconvenient because there are so many things about the way the world works that would be easier if Jesus had not told the story. But Jesus points out the widow, says she is bringing these two tiny coins. Mites would be the smallest possible coin in their economy. So it's, it's like smaller than pennies, right? How often do we now keep pennies? You know, there's a discussion in our economy about doing away with pennies altogether, right? Because no one really cares anymore. Just go to the round fives all the time. This is a smaller coin than a penny. So she brings these two little nothings and drops them into the temple offering. The way the world's economy works is that she gave virtually nothing. Probably every person in that city would ultimately give more than this woman gave. And yet, Jesus said her gift was the greatest of them all because she gave it all. This inconvenient story should not feel good. If this story feels good to you, then maybe I don't understand you. Because I know most of you, and none of us give it all. Now, we may give more than we used to. We may think that we will give more at some point in the future, but we are certainly not giving it all. The way God's economy works is that until we're willing to give it all, we've not given enough. The world does not work this way. The way that we measure value 
does not work this way. And yet Jesus says, the way we do it is not the best way. God's way is really best. And it becomes, I hope, aspirational. Not punitive, not disciplinary. It should not feel shameful or guilty. But I think it, is, it could feel like we aspire to be as committed as this widow. It's easier to make sense of God's economy when you've got nothing. And so we can hold up this widow as, she she had nothing. Those two mites weren't going to get her anything. So why not give it to God, right? What's she got to lose? Nothing. It's not quite as easy as that, especially for those of us who have a lot to lose. And so if we hearken back to a story that Luke told multiple chapters ago about the rich young ruler, it is not about truly giving everything away. It's about making sure that everything we have is used to God's goodness and glory. That's the real point. Don't feel like you've got to give everything away, which you're not going to do, and so therefore, whatever, right? That's often where we find ourselves, is we think either we give everything away or, you know, what difference does it make, right? If I give 3%, I'm not giving what Jesus wants, so why not give nothing? Or you run that out. Instead, if everything we have everything we can do, if all of our gifts are used for God's goodness in the world, we're doing what this widow is doing. That is our challenge, because none of us do that as well as we could. We are all on a sliding scale. Some of us do it better than others, but none of us are doing it as good as we, we could on our own, and so we should receive this as a challenge to take another step forward. That's the arc of our formation, is that we step forward all the time, right? Whenever we feel the nudge, we take a step. Whenever you feel that nudge, step somehow. It might be little steps or big steps. So long as we continue to move toward using everything we have for God, we're on the right path. Questions or thoughts before we end? You guys look down. It's hard. I know. I would love to say that it won't get harder, but you know what happens later on this week. So, it, not this week, but the week in Jesus' life. Um, it gets a little rougher. But we do have resurrection at the end of Luke's gospel, um, which we don't at the end of all the gospels. So we can hope for that. So hang in the next few weeks. We'll get there. Thank you all. Have a good day. Happy Easter.